Well, from time to time, it's just so helpful to hear testimonies of what the Lord is up to in the lives of people here at the King's Church. So we're going to hear from Emmanuel and Verena. So they're going to come forward now. So as they do so, let's make them feel very, very welcome. Thank you very much for agreeing to, uh, <laughs> to be up here. really appreciate it. Just, uh, just as a little background, uh, Manuel and Verena and their, and their family moved to High Wycombe uh, at the end of October last year. Good old High Wycombe. Uh, originally born in Germany, both of you born in Germany, and um, lived in just about every single part of the country. I looked at a map, Hanover, Cologne, Frankfurt, Stuttgart, that pretty much covers the north, south, and pretty large chunks of the middle as well. And moving is a theme, as we'll, as we'll find out during the course uh, of our discussion. You have three boys, three sons, that's good. We've got three sons too. Uh, Raphael, uh, 11. Daniel, who's nearly nine. And your youngest, Michael, who's nearly two. So, Emmanuel, to you first... Um, as a boy, you grew up uh, in, a, in a believing environment. Um, your parents took you and your siblings to, to church. But as a boy, what was your experience? What was church like for you as you grew up? Yeah, my parents were Christians and are Christians today. So I heard about God and they taught from the Bible. Um, however, I need to say it was a very like an ultra-conservative Christian group, almost like a Christian cult. Um, they were being very exclusive, had no fellowship with no other Christians. And all I learned really about God was that, well, God is God, and I have to obey Him. And if I don't obey Him, I'm in trouble, which means I'll go to hell. And being a Christian, all I learned was, you know, uh, there were certain things I had to do, and there were many other things I was not allowed to do, which all my friends were allowed to do. Um, and really, until I ever went to another church at the age of 19, I never heard it once that God might, you know, want to have a relationship with me. So quite a sort of, it, it ingrained in you the sense of you had to obey God. What was home like life? Like, uh, what was like life like with your mum and dad and, and your brothers? I'm the oldest of four, and my parents did love me. They loved me so much that my dad took on a, a second part-time job and got up at four every morning to really provide well for us. I knew that they loved me somehow, but my parents weren't able to express that to us children, to me. And, um, I mean, it's unbelievable, but in all my upbringing, they never told me I love you, Emmanuel, once. I never, ever heard that from him. And neither were they able to express it, you know, somehow tangibly, physically. So I, I don't have a single memory of them ever hugging me or taking me on their laps or anything of that kind. So I was really a love-deprived child. And how did that environment sort of affect your trust, your relationship with your, with your mum and dad? I guess that's easy to picture. You know, I was insecure in myself. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know if I was wanted and loved. And so as a teenager, I was uh, a loner, you know, very shy, very insecure. So in class, at school, 
uh, I went to the German version of grammar school and I was always among the best. But, you know, whenever I wanted to raise my hand because I, I knew I had the right answer, but still I would, you know, pull back and think like, oh, if it's not 100% on, then maybe someone might giggle or, you know, make a joke and then I would rather be quiet. Um, I was absolutely shy and insecure in myself. So this followed you, really, this sense of of feeling detached, a sense of possible distrust in, in, in the family. That, that sort of followed you into your early 20s. But then God touched you. You, you were in a meeting. You were in a Christian meeting, I guess a little bit like this one. And something happened to you. What happened in that meeting? What happened straight afterwards? Yeah, so I had given at that point, given up my, you know, childhood faith and started to explore myself. I knew that the Bible was true and I wanted to to get to know God. Uh, so I had become a believer. And I was in a meeting and the message of that uh, meeting was on the last verses of John 17. And there Jesus says, basically, uh, as much as the Father loves him, loves Jesus, the Father loves every one of the disciples. And it really hit me like never before. Well, that means God loves me as much as he loves Jesus himself. And it was, it was mind-blowing. And it was not only like mind-blowing up in my head. I, it was for the first time ever in my life, I experienced that God loves me. And I, it felt like I was sitting there on my chair as I do now. And it felt like there was something washing through my body. I was sobbing and I was all in tears. I had friends to my left and my right who, you know, wrapped their arms around me. And I was in tears for I don't know how long. But I just felt the love of God flow through my body. And that restored me and brought healing of my, you know, pain and of my insecurity. And I, I really remember I was, I got up from, from at the end of this meeting and I was a... a I was changed. I was transformed. And that triggered you to think about your upbringing and the, the situation with your, with your parents. And you felt that you had to respond. What did you do? Well, I, I soon learned that I had to forgive my father. That was my role. Um, and I did that in my heart. And um, then I got to know Verena, and we started dating. And obviously, you know, I wanted to let her know who I was. <laughs> and all the baggage that I would bring into our relationship. So I told her about my upbringing, and um, she listened to it and felt, she said, you know, have you forgiven your father? And I said, yes, of course, I have. And she felt like, prompted to, to still say, well, Emmanuel, I have a sense we should, you know, you should really pronounce this forgiveness, um, even though your father is not here now. And so I did that, um, I knelt down and um, just said, Father, and I, I forgive my father. And the moment I just said this one sentence, it was like a well opened up deep within me. And um, I began to cry uncontrollably, really. Uh, I was shaken. And Verena says I was crying for half an hour. I don't know. Because I was lost in time, I didn't know. I just, it was very painful because I felt all the, all the bitterness I had bottled up within me, all the pain, all the sense of rejection, all of this f flew out of me. And, um, 
still I felt very secure, but I, because there was a sense that God was in the room and God was holding me in this. And um, obviously Verena was there and uh, she, I knew she was on my side too. <laughs> and so ha- having been that, through that process of forgiveness, how has that affected how you feel up towards <clears throat> your parents? I can honestly say when I meet my father today, this part, first part of our relationship doesn't affect our relationship today. Uh, we still are not like best, have become best friends, but I would say we have a very positive relationship. And now I start to, you know, hug him and I tell him how much I appreciate him and love him on occasion. And, um, but when we talk, you know, there is no bitterness, there is no pain, and this does not affect our relationship at all today. That's great. Thank you very much, Emmanuel. Verena, a little bit about your background. You uh, grew up in Hanover. That's in northern Germany. Um, your parents, your, your mother and your father, they were originally from Poland. Uh, they left Poland in 1945 once the war had finished. Uh, the Soviet influence was about to take root in Poland, so they left to, to live in Germany. Your father was a Catholic. Your, your, your mother had a Lutheran influence. And so there was some... Christian influence in your childhood. But at the the age of around 13, you were confirmed in the church, in the Lutheran church. And that was quite a powerful, quite a significant occasion for you uh, because you felt God speak to you around that time in some quite powerful dreams. So what was God saying to you? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in some kind of Christian environment because there was always the discussion between my parents, Catholic and Lutheran, and so so it was a little bit a topic, but rather praying and knowing God exists somehow. But um, the interesting thing when I got confirmed, and I really wanted to make that um, a purposeful decision towards God, I was at that point, I really wanted to belong to God somehow. Um, the God gave me a dream, and I knew from this pre- preparing for the communion um, we had these Lutheran songs at church, which you don't usually sing at free evangelical churches, actually. Um, and the Lord gave me this song at night, and he gave me new words to this song, which were prophetic for my life. Uh, at that time, I didn't really know that it was that way, but I, I felt something. I felt they were really important, so I put them in my diary. And they were saying something like, um, I have a plan for your life. Um, and I want you to be a tool in my kingdom work. And that struck me, and it was really important for me, even though my parents didn't really help me in that. But I found it so significant that I still wrote it in my diary. And um, so that was important for the communion, and really making the first step of commitment towards God, even though I didn't know Jesus at that time. <laughs> So this was a traditional song, and God, you felt that God, in a dream, had given you new words to, 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 yes. to this song that was yeah. specific and personal to you. So I'm going to fast forward now, so um, through various moves. So you're now in Mainz, in Frankfurt. Uh, you've started your career. You're working as a hearing aid technician. Things are going well in the career for you, and you join a small evangelical church there, uh, and you're really struck by the Bible teaching, the, the strength of the Bible teaching. So you're there in this, in this church, very different style from the Lutheran church. And one evening in, in a small group, a small group meeting, you're looking at Jesus' baptism and something strikes you as you look at it. What, it, what is it that strikes you that evening? Yeah, you see, if you grow up in a Lutheran church, even if you 
uh, we would say a nominal Christian. I thought always I am a Christian, actually. So when I was sitting there, we were talking about Jesus being baptized so to fulfill the whole will of God. I was struck by that because I had always this excuse not to be baptized because I thought I had this communion. It was very special to me, so I don't need to be baptized in that sense like again. And I, at that point, I really was uh, struck by Jesus' commitment and his obedience, actually, into this doing, yeah, going into baptism himself. And, I mean, why should he? He's the most perfect person in the world, right? So then I thought, okay, if he has to do it, then I think I also have to do it. And so that's how it started, that I went to the seminar and that we talked things through and that I actually realized my baby baptism was not really a baptism in that sense what Jesus wanted us to do. And so I um, actually went to this day, uh, great day, um, to be baptized myself um, or be baptized so you were baptized, and you had a fear of water, you nearly drowned as a girl. So this was a massive, massive uh, hurdle <laughs> for you to, to overcome. Yes. When you were baptized, what changed? What difference did you notice after baptism? Yeah. Um, so the whole baptism thing was a big thing for me. Um, and the symbol God has given us is this kind of going underwater, being dead to sin, or being dead to the old one, and then coming up and being a new creature. Since I had not really this conversion, which was very from black to white. I kind of grew in in that. Um, This was so important for me to be baptized. On that day, I just realized it's like an anchor in my life, which kind of tucked me into Jesus and, um, and made it clear to the seen and unseen world that I belong to Jesus now, and nobody could take that from me anymore. So that was the great thing about that day besides many other great things. (laughs) Did you feel different in your Christian walk? Yeah, it made me, you know, I'm quite a stubborn kind of person, so I kind of went like this with Jesus, you know. And from that day on, I could really see that it was really going straight towards what he really wanted, really stronger in obedience and really were able to resist sin in a completely different way. Um, level of, I don't know, I mean, I still sin, of course, but it's, it was completely different than before. I was always struggling back and forth and not really interested in Jesus, and yes, interested. And from that day on, it was very clear what I had to do. I don't know how, it was just clear what I had to do. I don't know. That's great. Thanks, Varela. <laughs> so you're, you've been working, you're doing well in your career, and then in September 1995, um, you had a You told your boss you were leaving. You felt called to some type of Christian ministry. It wasn't clear exactly what that would be. You felt it might be counseling. Uh, You might might be just uh, serving in the church. And so another move for you, this time to Gießen near Frankfurt in the center of Germany. And you attended a theological college just to get some some Bible in you, get more of the Bible (laughs) in you. And uh, there you met Emmanuel. And so Emmanuel, back to you. Uh, you're in your final year of college, and this beautiful blonde woman catches your eye. It's Verena. Don't worry. It's not anyone else. I could, that could be awkward. So Verena catches your eye. Now, was it, was it love at first sight? Not exactly. <laughs> well, she caught my eye when I first saw her. 
but then obviously I returned to my studies because I was just so devoted as a student. No, um, <laughs> it's a long story. It was, um, some of our friends jokingly said it was love at the last sight because uh, I had already completed my studies. I was in the midst of my final exams when we had our first date. Now, forgive me here. I, I've worked, spent a lot of time uh, before I worked for the church, I spent a lot of time working in Germany. I worked with lots of Germans. And one thing that's very, very noticeable about Germans, they have an impeccable sense of timing. Everything is so precise uh, and well-organized. So, you, uh, you then left college and you, you got married a year later. So, presumably, you chose the timing spot on for when you got married. So, can you just tell us when exactly you got married? So I graduated and then moved on to, uh, to Cologne, 200 miles away, and did uh, pastoral work in a church. And obviously, you know, we're too far apart from one another, and we wanted to get married. So we decided as soon as her last um, day uh, in theological college was completed that we would want to get married, uh, which means she still had her final exams um, ahead of her. So picture ourselves going on a three-week honeymoon and taking all the theological books with us and preparing for final exams on the beach. It's what we expect of all our newly marrieds, actually. So we can give you the book list if you're interested. So you got married. Uh, so we then fast forward another two years. You've been married for two years. Um, you both feel called to missionary work in Sudan, and you've discerned that various ways. And you go out to live. Now, it's your second time out there. You've been out in 1997. But for Aina, for you, that was your first time you'd ever been, was with Emmanuel. So it's a massive step of faith for you. And you start living together uh, in Khartoum, which is the capital, in order to, to learn the language, which you plan to do for a couple of years. And again, you're German, so you will have timed everything precisely. As soon as you arrive there, you have some surprising news. What's that surprising news? Yeah, I found out that I'm pregnant. That was not really our original plan. We had figured it out, especially him. He's so good in preparing things. Um, so, um, yeah, we just found out that something went wrong and uh, or good. You don't, <laughs> don't know. It went wrong in our super planning, so I found out I'm pregnant but it turned out to be really a good thing to actually uh, get into the get into the culture as they know it because they they have i mean what they understand is women married with kids what they don't understand is women married kids no why not kids immediately so actually it was a good thing to have kids immediately but our That's planning was kind of right <laughs> yeah <laughs> So you found a little bit more about the sovereignty of God and his planning and his oh, timing. Yes. <laughs> so there you are. You're now in Sudan. Now, Sudan is, at this time, it's very much in, in the news uh, because of the civil war going on there. And a uh, very autocratic regime, very strong, heavy-handed regime. So what is the government's reaction to Christians in that country sharing the gospel with non-Christians, and particularly with Muslims? The government, in theory, is a democracy with human rights. So to share the good news is not against the Constitution. The Constitution of the country provides religious freedom, freedom of gathering, freedom of proclamation, the whole thing. Uh, practically speaking, the government is not too impressed with Christians coming into the country 
and uh, as they would put it, you know, spreading Christianity. In other words, sharing uh, with Muslims about Jesus. Um, so probably um, when they found out, find out, they would um, expel individuals from the country who would do that. So when you arrived, so that's, when you arrived, you lived with a local Muslim family, you lived in their house, you learned the language, and then you started, uh, after 18 months, you started an Arabic institute, not really to teach people who were foreigners who were coming into the country the basics of, of the language. And um, how did you share the gospel? What happened in terms of sharing the gospel while you were in those early years in Khartoum? We soon found out that Muslims are very ready to talk about the faith. In fact, there the men have three topics they talk about all the time. And it's, of course, football, and it's religion, and it's, it's politics, I'm sorry, and it's thirdly religion. So when I, you know, share about my faith, that's the most normal thing for them to do. And I soon find, found that even on the street, as I run into people, I can share about Jesus with them if I do it in a culturally sensitive way. And when they realize, oh, this white man speaks Arabic, wow, then, of course, they're curious to find more, find out more about me. And, um, and then I have a chance to share more. So, in other words, um, most Muslims we found are very open to hear what we have to say and to, um, to listen. Uh, however, of course, they have a message they want to share with us as well. So it's a good dialogue. So you're in dialogue, you, you've been there in Khartoum, and you started sharing the gospel in a natural way, start talk, speaking about Jesus. What happens with your Muslim friends? Yeah, we had high expectations, but still we're surprised that already after ten, 10 months in the country, the first of our neighbors came clearly to the Lord. And then a few months later, we had the whole the first house church of uh, Arab uh, Muslims, of Sudanese Arab uh, gathered. And the interesting thing was that for all of these men, it was at that time, we weren't the only sort of impetus in their lives. All of them had been searching spiritually and had found them they were not content with what Islam had to offer them. Some had turned communists for a while. Some had, you know, even talked to the Jehovah's Witnesses. And some have read, had read the Bible. And, and, and we're just God sovereignly put us into their lives or the other around. And we could share Jesus with them. So within two years, you, you've, you've got a small church that, that started there in Khartoum in the capital. Muslims have, have come to faith in Jesus. What, what difference did that make to their lives? Every, every, every person is different. But what, what I've seen in most Muslims is really the fact that Jesus would give them forgiveness once and for all is just the big thing. Um, you know, I think most of us need to picture where they're coming from. Um, and they every day walk through the day knowing that they have these angels sit on their shoulder and one angel, the one sitting on the left shoulder, recording all their sins and the other angel on their right shoulder recording all their good deeds. And they need to make an effort today that hopefully the merits will outweigh their sins. And even then they can't be sure if God accepts them on the final day, if God pardons them or not. So they, they live their lives with that constant fear. Will it be enough Will it be enough for paradise? And then for them, for at least the, the ones we met, to hear the message 
well, you know, Jesus pardons all your sins, present, past, and future. Wow, I mean, this is good news. It is. So that makes a big difference to, to the lives of those that then follow, start following Jesus. And so now you've been in cartoon for a while. Uh, after three years, you're running a, an NGO. That's a non-governmental organization doing humanitarian uh, work, things like health clinics, overseeing feeding programs for mal- malnourished children, uh, training people with midwifery skills. Um, and then you move out of Khartoum in your fifth year, you move uh, your NGO up to Darfur. Now, Darfur's in the news. It's, it's the center of one of the most vicious conf- world conflicts going on. And um, the fighting is, is fierce and it's intense. And as a white couple, you're being scrutinized by the intelligence services and you decide to do something very specific in terms of your uh, NGO work, in terms of your relationships with people. You decide to go to a particular area. What what, what do you decide? Um, If you see the map of Darfur, all the towns are government-held, but as soon as you leave the towns 15 miles or farther and you're in the rural rural areas in between, it's all held by the the, uh, rebels, rebel uh, armies. And so we made a conscious decision, if we want to share Jesus widely and not have always someone look over our shoulder as we do, we want to enter rebel-held territories, which means we had to cross every week the conflict line, the, uh, the, the conflict, conflict line, I'm sorry, uh, the front line, and go into these rebel-held territories. So finally, you were the first white family in Darfur. And so you are clearly, you stand out, you're a matter of curiosity there. Um, And so you're in one of the most dangerous places on the planet, doing humanitarian work, uh, sharing the gospel as you're doing it, sharing Jesus, showing what he's like. What happened? So you're doing all this serving. What happened? So we come into these villages and all these people are desperate, affected by the war, dispersed and, and, and displaced many times. And we want to help them. Um, and the projects we run are part of what we want to do for the kingdom. Uh, it's not like, we, you know, they are a, a sort of a cover to get in. And so we have a meeting with the uh, village chiefs, they're called sheikhs there, and we tell them that we, that we have arrived here and we want to help them. And um, we want to talk about Jesus, right? So even in the first meeting, you know, they're all Muslims. I, I make it clear to them that we, we are here because we are people who serve God and we come here to serve them. So whatever they tell us serves them. We're trying our very best to facilitate such a program for them. So you're, so you're there, you're doing humanitarian work. You're there with very influential people, the sheikhs, the leaders of the villages, and then you have a gathering. So can you tell us what happened? You gather a number of them together. How did that come about, about and what happened? Um, we speak their language, and so we begin to develop relationships, and we have tea under the tree in the shade, you know, when the program is not as intense. And um, they ask questions. So, you know, why are you here? And what, 
what do you think of our situation? And, and with every question they ask, I try to bring Jesus into the conversation. So when they ask, what are you doing here? I tell them, look, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus, a follower of Isa. And Isa says in his book, in the Injil, that, you know, as his followers, we should care for the poor in the world, for the needy. And that's the reason that brought us here. And then they ask about the war. So why is it we're having this war? And do you think we have hope? And again, I point them to Jesus. In the, in the Islam, Jesus is known as the Nabi As-Salam, as the prophet of peace. So I tell them, look, Jesus, the prophet of peace, he's the answer. And he, he's the one who can bring you peace. You need to first have peace with God and then, you know, peace with your neighbors and with your family. And then you can have peace, you know, among the different tribes. Anyway, all of this happens in small group conversations And as sense in me grows, these people are not asking polite questions. They want to know. They're open. And so I go before the Lord and say, Lord, give me boldness to really take advantage of this opportunity. And one morning I get up from my morning devotions and I say, I will preach to them. Now, this is a scary thing to do, right? Still, still they're all Muslims. And still this could mean we're expelled within the week. And still, I get there and return to the village and say to the senior sheikh, sheikh uh, so-and-so, you know what, we have had all these conversations about Isa and about peace and, and what the word of God has to say. So how about if we had a meeting, you and sheikh so-and-so and all the sheikhs really of the whole region, and, 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 and I would have more time and opportunity to address these questions. Sure enough, that's what he did. He sent messengers on donkeys in the various villages. And two weeks later, 60 of them were there. They came as far as six hours on a donkey. And I shared. You know, interactive, asking questions, seeing what the, the common ground is I could build on. But I presented a very, very clear gospel presentation, starting from Adam and Eve up until the cross. And then I sat down. Presumably your heart was in your mouth as you sat down. What, said, was the, what was the reaction, Emmanuel? Yeah, well, the reaction I said as I started to pray hard. I learned enough about the culture to understand that in such meetings, then various individuals would stand up and share their opinion on what had been said. So I sat there and said, oh, Lord, now guide this whole thing. Lord, please keep us in here. Please make sure we're not expelled from here, that we work and continue. But these men, they said amazing things. Just want to quote two this morning. One said, you know, um, this old system, and with this referred to Islam, I've never really understood. But this here, this message makes, makes sense, and I believe it is from God, and we need to know more. Or another one says, you know, I, you know, guys, I have been in the north of the country where all the uh, Islamic scholars are and the famous preachers in the mosques, and I've heard all of them. But you, you know what? To be honest, all of them use only the religion for their personal gain, and none of them lives up to what he preaches in the mosque. But this here, what we heard today, I believe is truth, and we need to know more of it. So you've had 60 influential sheikhs, Muslim sheikhs, come to that meeting, touched by the gospel, they make a response. Then what happens? What do they give you permission to do after that? What's the next step? 
Well, I very humbly asked, so in case you're interested in hearing more, I might make myself available. <laughs> and they said, when, next week? <laughs> Honestly, they did. And so we had meetings for, for a number of months. And after we have had them for three, three months or so, I decided they were ready And I made a public altar call. So picture this, village square, it's public, the kids are around, the women are in the background, in front of the village school. And I said, I have a sense that all of you uh, have come to believe in this message. If this is the case, would you pray with me? And they prayed publicly and denounced the devil and all evil and decided that they want to become followers of Jesus. And this is now a number of years ago, and I sit here and I still don't believe it. But every single one of the men present followed the call and entered the kingdom. So that was like a... So that really opened the door through the, the sheikhs, through those who were influential, through the leaders, to go into the villages and preach the gospel. And you saw others in the villages, come to faith as well, which was remarkable, bearing in mind the war that was going on all around you. And it just sounds, it's a great story, isn't it? It's a wonderful, uh, incredible thing that God has done. But, <laughs> Ferena, you've seen this. You, you've, you've been looking after the children as Manuel's been going out. You, uh, what you've been striving for starts to unfold before you in terms of Muslims coming to faith in Jesus. But for you... What was, the cost? what was the cost to you as a family, as a mother and a wife, and a cost to Emmanuel for this? Yeah, first of all, because I had the kids, I couldn't really go with him into the field, which was kind of frustrating because he had all the super stories to tell. And I was just sitting at home praying, of course, but um, having the kids, um, <laughs> they're smiling. Um, okay, but um, I think the costs um, at that time were mainly, um, I think that we had to deal with a lot of sicknesses um, and not really a good health system, actually none really. So I had always my book where there is no doctor with me and uh, had to solve things myself sometimes. I grew into knowing the major medicine you need. Um, We had a major attack, demonic attack, two times on our boys. Um, but the Lord was stronger, so there was good experience also. But it was difficult. Um, the major difficulty, I think, what we had to face over the year uh, or the years we worked with, uh, Emmanuel went out mainly every day, and he was so busy. He didn't tell you, but it's um, actually only him and a Swiss lady working in this NGO because we didn't get the professionals coming and helping us. So they, for some reason, didn't appear. So we had to set up the NGO, and we had to do everything ourselves, uh, not me. I was at home. So it was Emmanuel and the, the Swiss lady. And so that um, wears you out after a while. And um, all the little, I mean, we can tell hundreds of stories about that. But um, So he came home. When he came home, he was very tired, worn out, and so we didn't really interact that well anymore. So I felt quite lonely. He felt worn out, and it took really a toll on our marriage, and we had to think after a while that we really need to save our marriage um, by going back to Germany then. 
So you had some time out in Germany, really, to recover. Both of you to recover in one sense. Emmanuel, for, for you, just to get over the exhaustion and the burnout of everything you've been doing, just to reestablish yourselves as husband and wife. You did return back to Sudan. And then you went back to, to Germany a couple of years ago to, to have your youngest son, Michael. What happened when you had Michael? Yeah, we came back in um, 2011, um, and we had just started again in uh, 2008, being in Sudan and the capital this t- time and setting up good things. We had a good house group, a little house group church there. And so the idea was, okay, we just quickly go. I, I became pregnant with uh, Michael. He's just at crash at the moment, crying, I guess. Um, and <laughs> and um, so we had him in Germany, and I wanted to deliver him in Germany because the other first delivery was very difficult in Sudan. So um, the plan was going to Germany, and then he was born, and he had a liver disease or whatever, it uh, just not functioning. And he had a liver transplant when he was three weeks old. And um, so that turned overnight our life upside down because we uh, realized overnight, okay, we cannot return to Sudan because he needs... Um, medical attention for the rest of his life, uh, very strong medicine which reduces the immune system, and so uh, uh, you cannot have the health system in any African country. We inter, we try to find out, but it's not possible there. So we have to stay until he's big enough and maybe stable enough that we could go out again. So that made us our life kind of tricky. <laughs> And uh, that was bearing out, really, on us. But anyway. And so that's really why you're here in the UK. You're help, still yes. helping to other Plan teams B. in <laughs> Africa. Um, but you're here, really, it, not simply to do that, but for, for, for the best uh, for Michael, for his care as well. 